Okay, folks, let's pray, and then we're going to open up Hebrews chapter 13. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we invoke your presence. We ask, Lord, for the work of the Spirit of God to be here today, that the Scriptures would enrich us and touch us, move upon us, Lord. Lord, may the Scriptures go through us today and and. Make us into different kinds of people. We pray, Lord, as we look at this benediction in Hebrews 13, that it would have a powerful effect on us as we rejoice in the blood of the covenant and the great shepherd of the sheep and the God of peace. And we would rejoice in the way you're working to sanctify us by equipping us and working in us and uniting us. And that all would redound to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, please open with me this morning to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 20 and 21. Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now you'll notice that verses 20 and 21 are a benediction. A benediction is a prayer of blessing. And the author of the book of Hebrews, we don't know who it was, but whoever this person was, he's praying a prayer of blessing for the people that he's been writing to. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, verse 21, equip you and work in you that which is pleasing in his sight. So it's a prayer of blessing, and it's a prayer really that concerns this idea of sanctification. This is probably one of my top two benedictions in all of the Bible. There are two that I just love. There's this one, and there's the one that ends the book of Jude. Now unto him who is able to make you or to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. I mean, how can you top that doxology? It's awesome. But this is also of the same caliber. It's so rich with instruction. And the central idea of this benediction is that it's concerning our own sanctification. Now, the word sanctification means holiness. And it is the will of God for every Christian to be making progress in holiness, to be putting sin to death in his life, and for the graces of the Spirit to be vivified. It means to be made alive, to come alive inside your life. So his graces are getting stronger and sin is getting weaker year by year as we get to know him better. Now we know, verse 21 says, that the central idea has to do with God equipping us in every good thing to do His will. So sanctification is really all about doing the will of God. When you boil it down. Doing the will of God. And this particular bene benediction has two parts to it. The first part is in verse 20. Verse 20 is the foundation for our sanctification. And then verse 21 is the process of our sanctification. So verse 20, the foundation, it tells you 
what's the basis for our sanctification? What has to be there in order for us to grow in holiness? And then verse 21, that tells you how God actually does it in our lives. So, verse 20, foundation. There are three phrases I want you to think about this morning with me. The first one, the blood of the eternal covenant. The second one, the great shepherd of the sheep. The third one, the God of peace. Those three phrases provide a foundation for sanctification. The process, verse 21, I want you to think about three ways that God makes us holy. He equips us, He works in us, and He unites us to Jesus Christ. So with that as a framework, let's begin to meditate now upon this great prayer benediction for these believers. The foundation of our sanctification, and the first phrase we're going to meditate on is the blood of the eternal covenant. The blood of the eternal covenant. Now what is the eternal covenant that this author is writing about? We know it can't be the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. And we find this covenant laid out in the book of Exodus, starting in chapter 19, going through 20 and chapters on. We know it can't be that one. And by the way, this is also called the Old Covenant, in contrast to the New Covenant. We know it can't be this covenant because in Hebrews chapter 8, in the book of Hebrews here, chapter 8, he contrasts the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. And then at the very end of contrasting those two covenants, he says in verse 13, when he said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So the old covenant has disappeared. It's obsolete. It no longer applies to new covenant Christians. We are under a different covenant than this covenant that he's describing here in Hebrews chapter 8. The Mosaic covenant. God has taken us out from under that covenant and we've been put into this new covenant. The one that Jesus said when he introduced the Last Supper. He said this is the blood of my covenant which is given for the sins of many. You remember that? So, this isn't the Mosaic Covenant when he talks about the blood of the eternal covenant. It's something else. Something different. I believe what he's describing here when he talks about the blood of the eternal covenant is that covenant that has been in existence from all eternity and it's a covenant between the three persons of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Before the foundation of the world was ever laid, the three persons of the Trinity covenanted together to do some things. And it concerns the salvation of sinners. Now we know this because when Jesus came, he began talking about this arrangement that he had with his father before he even came into the world. And by the way, a covenant is, you could call it a binding agreement or a binding arrangement. When humans enter into binding agreements, what do we call that? A contract. So a covenant is similar to a contract. It's binding, and in order to enter into this covenant, you have to make an oath or a promise. And so the persons of the Trinity have entered into a binding agreement, making oaths and promises to one another before they even made the world. And Jesus speaks to us about that agreement 
first of all in John chapter 6. So I want you to turn there for a minute. And we're going to look at John 6, 37 to 39. Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Now notice certain things from this section of Scripture. Verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And verse 39 says, Of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. So it's evident that the Father had given the Son a people. Verse 37, all the Father gives me. Verse 39, of all that He has given me. There is a people from all eternity that the Father has given to His Son and placed those people in His Son's hands for Him to come and to save. So before the foundation of the world, there are these promises made the promise that God made is that he had a people that he's giving to his son. Now notice also verse 37. What's going to happen to these people that the father gives to the son? What will they do? They're going to come. Is there any chance they may not make it? None whatsoever. All that the father gives to the son come to the son. What does it mean to come to the Son? Look at verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes will never thirst. This is an example of parallelism in the Bible. Coming is equivalent to what in that verse? Believing. Believing. So to come to Jesus means to have faith in Christ. And so the Father made an oath that he was going to give the Son a people. And every single last one of those people are going to come to Christ and believe upon him to be saved. Now, he goes on in verse 37. What promise does he make about these people that come to Jesus in verse 37? What will Jesus not do? He'll never cast them out. They never have to be afraid that they're going to cross some kind of a line where he says, I'm just through with you. I'm tired of you. You're out. He'll never do that. He'll never cast them out once they've come. And verse 38 tells us that part of this arrangement between the Father and the Son was that the Son came down from heaven for a particular purpose, not to do his own will. Jesus didn't come into the world trying to figure out what he was supposed to be here all for. <laughs> he wasn't like figuring things out on the fly. He came down here having a, a pre-arranged plan of the Father for him to execute. And he says, I didn't come to do my own will. I came to do the will of him who sent me. And here it is. This is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose how many? Nothing. But what will I do for those people instead? He's going to raise them all up on the last day. In other words, he's going to raise them up, resurrect them, glorify them, 
so that their bodies now are glorified and they shall forever be with Christ for all eternity. So here's the plan. The Father says, I have a people. I'm giving them to you, son. Your job is to come into this world and save them and then raise them up to be with you forever. Now, go over to John chapter 10. We'll read a little bit more about this covenant. Starting in verse 16. Well, you know, I'm going to pick it up in 15. John 10, 15. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep, which are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Now, verse 16 speaks about other sheep which Jesus has which are not of that present fold. So what is he talking about? What, what are these other sheep that he already has that are not of that fold? No, what, okay, what's the fold that he's talking about? The Jewish fold. He says, I have other sheep which are not of the Jewish fold. So these are Gentile sheep. Did you notice the, the tense of the verb? He doesn't say, I will have. He says, I have them. I have right now other sheep which are not of this fold. And what do I have to do for those sheep? Got to bring them. What is the word he uses to describe the intensity of that? Must. Must. There is a divine necessity in him going to get those sheep and bringing them. He has to do it. Why does he have to do that? Yeah, and it's part of the covenant. This covenant between the Father and the Son. He came into the world to get these sheep. He has to get them. There's a divine necessity laid upon him to do that. And what will they do, according to verse 16? They will hear his voice. That's similar to what we had back in John 6. They will come. They will hear his voice. Now, there's lots of people in this world that will never hear the voice of Christ. Sadly. He who has ears to hear, Jesus said, let him hear. Most people don't have ears to hear. Jesus is going to make sure some people hear his voice. And he will bring them and they will come. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. So this Jewish bunch of sheep are going to join these uh, Gentile bunch of sheep and they're going to come together as one flock with one shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason, the Father loves me, he says, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. So Jesus already knew coming into the world that the plan was to lay down his life. But he also knew he was going to take that life back again. Now, how did he know this? Look at 18. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Where did Jesus get the authority to lay down his life and then to take up his life again? Look at it. This what? Commandment. The ESV says this charge. I received 
from my father. Do you see the covenant in place between the father and the son? The father commanded the son as part of this covenant to go get the sheep that I'm giving you. Get them, save them, raise every single one of them up on the last day, glorify them, and bring them back to glory. That's the charge. That's the commandment I'm laying upon you. You see, each of the members of the Trinity had a part in this covenant that they were to perform. And I don't think I can explain it better to you than just by reading to you uh, a, an excerpt from a sermon by Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the 1800s, a Baptist preacher from London, one of my favorite preachers of all time. I'm just going to read this to you because he puts into words this idea of this inner Trinitarian covenant, this eternal covenant. And this is what he said. I, the Most High Jehovah, do hereby give unto my only begotten and well-beloved Son a people, countless beyond the number of the stars, who shall be by him washed from sin, by him preserved and kept and led, and by him at last presented before my throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. I covenant my oath, and I swear by myself, because I can swear by no greater, that these whom I now give to Christ shall be forever the objects of my eternal love. Them will I give through the merit of the blood. To these will I give a perfect righteousness. These will I adopt and make my sons and daughters, and these shall reign with me through Christ eternally. So that's the part of the Father. Let's go to the part of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit also, as one of the high contracting parties on this side of the covenant, gave his declaration. I hereby covenant, said the Spirit, that all whom the Father giveth to the Son, I will in due time quicken and bring to life. I will show them their need of redemption. I will cut off from them all groundless hope, destroy their refuges of lies. I will bring them faith whereby this blood shall be applied to them. I will work in them every grace. I will keep their faith alive. I will cleanse them and drive out all depravity from them, and they shall be presented at last spotless and faultless. And then finally, we have the part of the Son of God himself. As for the other side of the covenant, this was the part of it engaged and covenanted by Christ. He thus declared and covenanted with his Father. My Father, on my part, I covenant that in the fullness of time I will become man. I will take upon myself the form and nature of the fallen race. I will live in their wretched world. And for my part, will I keep the law perfectly, and I will work out a spotless righteousness which shall be acceptable to the demands of thy just and holy law. In due time, I will bear the sins of all my people. Thou shalt exact their debts on me. The chastisement of their peace I will endure and by my stripes they shall be healed. My Father, I covenant and promise that I will be obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I will magnify thy law and make it honorable. I will suffer all they ought to have suffered. I will endure the curse of the law, and all the vials of thy wrath shall be emptied and spent upon my head. I will then rise again. I will ascend into heaven. I will intercede for them at thy right hand. I will make 
myself responsible for every one of them, that not one of them whom thou hast given me shall ever be lost. But I will bring all my sheep, of whom by my blood thou hast constituted me the shepherd, I will bring every one of them safe to thee at last. What do you think of that covenant, folks? Does that blow your mind? Now, he's not just pulling things out of the air. Spurgeon is pulling scriptures from all parts of the Bible into what he's just laid out for us in this sermon so that we can see and understand something that must have transpired between the persons of the Godhead from all eternity. This is the eternal covenant. And Jesus here is the one who offers the blood of the eternal covenant. And this provides a basis for sanctification. You have to know that his blood was shed because you're one of his sheep and he's bringing you to glory before you can really take a step towards holiness. You need to see and have peace with God. So that's the first phrase I wanted to meditate on you with. The second one is the great shepherd of the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep. Now, there are three phrases for Jesus as shepherd in Scripture. He's called the Good Shepherd. He's called the Great Shepherd. And he's also called the Chief Shepherd. He's called the Good Shepherd in John 10. I am the Good Shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. So he's called the Good Shepherd in connection to what? In connection to his death. I'm the Good Shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. He's called the Great Shepherd in connection to what? His resurrection. Hebrews 13 said that the God of peace brought again from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. And in 1 Peter 5, 4, he's called the chief shepherd. When the chief shepherd shall appear, then he'll give you the unfading crown of glory. So he's called the chief shepherd in connection to what? His return. His, return, his appearing. So he is the good, the great, the chief shepherd. But over here in Hebrews 13, we're told that he was raised from the dead through the blood of the eternal covenant. And I want you to see the connection between the blood that he shed and his resurrection from the dead. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. You see, there is a connection between what Jesus did at the cross, the blood that he shed, to fulfill that eternal covenant, and God the Father then raising his Son from the dead. There was a necessity of the Father raising the Son from the dead because Jesus Christ had already fulfilled his part of the covenant. You see, the Father had a part, the Son had a part, and the Holy Spirit had a part to play. And when Jesus laid down his life unto death, what was taking place is that he had fulfilled his part of the covenant. Everything that he promised to do, he had done. In fact, you might say he signed that covenant with his own blood. It's done. It's finished. Christ had done and completed everything that he said that he would do, that he promised to do, that he gave an oath that he would do. And so now, God's got to make good on his side of the bargain. 
part of God's bargain was that, okay, son, if you will do all that I'm asking you to do, I am going to glorify you. I am going to take away the shame that you've experienced there. That shameful death, and I am going to give you glory. I'm going to raise you from the dead, and I'm going to exalt you to my right hand, and all the spiritual beings of this universe will bow at your feet and worship you. And so the Father begins to kick in now that Jesus has fulfilled his side, and the Father now begins to fulfill his side of the covenant. And so that's why he's raised up from the dead because of, or by, or through the blood of the eternal covenant. You see, Jesus is our surety. That's a word we don't use much anymore. Anybody understand that word? You do? Good. It's kind of like a cosigner on a loan. It's somebody that assumes the legal debts of somebody else. So if my son wanted to buy a house and I said, okay, son, I'll cosign with you. What I'm doing is I'm saying, okay, if he defaults, I'm on the hook to pay for that house. I, I, and I'm, I'm writing my name not in blood, but in ink. <laughs> I'm writing my name on the contract saying, I will make good if he defaults. Well, what happened? We all defaulted. Every single one of us has sinned miserably against God, pitifully against him, rebelliously against him. So we've defaulted on the loan, but Jesus is our surety. He has assumed our legal debts to pay those debts in case we would default. And of course we did. And the consequence of us defaulting on the loan was the righteous anger of God. The Bible calls that the wrath of God. Jesus stepped in to pay the legal debt, which is to take the fury of God's holy anger upon himself, and he assumed that anger at the cross. And that's why the Bible calls the cross work his propitiation, it's a word we never use anymore, but it's a Bible word. And the word propitiation means that sacrifice which turns away wrath. Jesus became the propitiation for our sins as he hung between heaven and hell. The sky turned black. The wrath of God's poured out on him. The Father deserts the Son, and Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because he's becoming our surety. He's standing in our place. Assuming our debts, paying our debts in full. Now, if Jesus did that and paid our debts and became our surety, and then the Father didn't raise him from the dead, what does that tell us? What, what kind of a character would the Father have if he did not... And, work up to his end of the bargain. He would lack integrity, wouldn't he? Now, let's, let's take it in a different vein. Let's say that Jesus dies on that cross, he's put into that tomb, but in three days later he never comes out. In fact, 2,000 years later he's still in the tomb. What would that tell us about the debts that we owed to God? We still have them. You see, when Jesus had perfectly paid off the debt, the Father demonstrated that the debt had been paid, 
proved that the debt had been paid by raising his son. The resurrection of Christ is proof positive that the debt was paid. As long as he was paying the debt, he was enduring this prison of death. He was in this grave, paying off the debt. But when the debt was fully paid, God set his seal and said, My son, you have finally paid the entire debt. You are now free to go from this prison house. And Jesus comes forth from the grave, displaying and publicly showing to all the world that the debt was paid. Sin has been canceled. The atonement is perfected. And God has accepted that atoning work. He's accepted it as just payment for all the debts of all the sheep who would ever live. That's good news. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is good news because it shows us that God accepted what Jesus did. And if he accepted it, it must mean it's good enough. <laughs> it's sufficient. It's not lacking. If, if it was lacking anything, Jesus would still be in that grave. But the fact that he's not means that that death of Christ is good enough to pay for your sin. You can be free. You can be forgiven of every sin because of what transpired there on the cross. Now, he's called the great shepherd of who? Of the sheep. You say, well, Brian, that's obvious. A shepherd's always, no. Shepherds can also be shepherds of goats. And did you know this world is divided into two categories? You've got sheep and you've got goats. When Jesus told the parables of Matthew 25, he went on to say, when the king comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he's going to sit on his glorious throne. And just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, so the Son of Man is going to separate all the nations into two categories, the sheep and the goats. The sheep are those who receive eternal life. The goats are those who receive eternal punishment. There's only two categories of people in this world. He's the shepherd of the sheep. This goes back to John chapter 6 and John chapter 10, doesn't it? Where there is a group of people given to the Son. They're called sheep. They're called sheep. Now, how do we know who's a sheep and who's not a sheep? Let's go to John chapter 10 and read the description of a sheep. We're going to look at John 10, 27 to 29. Jesus tells us exactly how we can notice who a sheep is. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So you tell me, give me some descriptions of what a sheep looks like. What does he do, first of all? He hears the voice of the Amen. Amen. You know, I never heard the voice of Christ until I was 19 years old. I went to church my whole life. I heard the priest reading out of the Bible, but I never heard the voice of Christ. I heard it when I was 19 years old and he changed me. That's 36 years ago and I've never been that old person since. I've always been a new person since I was 19. God allowed me to hear the, his voice speaking to me. 
Okay, what's something else we learn about a sheep here? They follow Christ. There is no such thing as a sheep who hears the voice of Jesus but doesn't follow Jesus. You see that from the text? Every sheep follows. If you're not following Jesus, you're not a sheep, or at least you're not a Maybe you are a sheep, but you've never found out you're a sheep yet. Because <laughs> you know what? Sheep are sheep, whether they know it or not. At some time during their life, they're going to hear the voice of Christ, and they're going to start following Jesus. And so to follow Jesus means to obey Him. It means to obey and do what He says for them to do. Sheep do that. What's another characteristic? He knows them. There it is, verse 27. Jesus knows every last sheep. If you are one of His, He knows you in a special sense. Of course, He knows about everybody, but this is talking about a saving covenant relationship that He has with His sheep. What else? Yeah, they are the ones in this world that possess eternal life. Now, everybody's going to live forever, right? Eternal life isn't just the fact that you're going to live forever. Eternal life is that you're going to live forever with God. That's eternal life. And His sheep have it the moment they believe upon Him. They don't get it when they die. If you're a sheep uh, and you have believed on Christ, you have eternal life right now. And what else is true about them? Yeah, what will never happen to them? Never, never, never perish. They won't perish. If any sheep of Christ ends up in hell, Jesus was a liar. He told us explicitly, they're never going to perish. And there's not a, anyone, there's not a demon in hell. Satan himself cannot snatch you out of the hand of Jesus Christ. And you're not only in Jesus' hand, but the Father's hand is around Christ's hand, and there's nobody that can snatch you out of the Father's hand. And he also tells us in verse 29 that the Father has given those sheep to Jesus. My Father who has given them to me. You just won't want to miss that little tidbit. So that's what a sheep is. You can know if you're a sheep. Have you heard the voice of Jesus? And are you following Him? Obeying Him? We're not talking about head knowledge. We're talking about obedience. Do you possess eternal life? Those are characteristics of a sheep. Goats don't have any of those characteristics. Goats might hear with this physical ear the word, but they don't hear with their heart, and they don't obey, they don't follow, and they don't possess eternal life. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. You see, Jesus is the representative of of all the people that God gave him from all eternity. What that means is that Jesus is a public person. He's not, he didn't come into this world as a private person. He came as a public person. Now let me try to explain what I mean by that. Barack Obama is a public person because he acts as a representative and in the interest of all of the citizens of the United States. So if he declares war someplace, He's done that on behalf of the whole population of the United States. We are at war with ever, whoever he declares that we're at war with. Do you see he's a public person? As a representative, he makes decisions on behalf of others. 
Jesus Christ came into the world as a representative of these sheep, as a public person. He came into this world being responsible for them. When I was a kid, my mom sometimes would say, Brian, take Kenny and Rose and Julie down to the store, and here's 50 cents for each of you guys. You can go get some candy and you can come back. And she says, and I'm putting you in charge. So what does that mean? I'm responsible because I was the oldest one. I was in charge of making sure that they didn't get hit by cars going across the road, that nobody kidnapped them, you know. That was, I was in charge of making sure I brought them back safely home. God the Father put Jesus Christ in charge of the sheep. He made him responsible in every sense for these sheep so that Jesus' life was lived out not for himself. His perfect righteous life was lived for who? For those sheep, for the ones God gave him. Not only his life, but then his death. He laid down his life in death as a sacrifice. Jesus wasn't dying for himself. He was dying for his sheep. And then he rose again from the dead. Not for himself, but for his sheep. And then he ascends to heaven, and then he intercedes. Not for himself, he's interceding for his sheep. You see, those sheep, do you remember the high priest of Israel? where he'd wear this breast piece of righteousness and he would have 12 stones across that breast piece over his heart and those same 12 stones over his shoulders. That was to symbolize that there's coming a greater high priest, Jesus Christ, who's going to have his people symbolized by those 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of God's people, Jew and Gentile that form his church. They're going to be upon his shoulders, the place of strength and over his heart the place of his affections. And he's going to represent them by living for them, dying for them, rising for them, interceding for them. Folks, if you're a sheep, you are the apple of his eye. He loves you beyond compare. There are none in this world like his sheep that, that his love goes out to. In fact, his love has been going out to you from all eternity. And it will never stop. You will always be the eternal objects of the Son of God's love because you're a sheep. So he is the great shepherd of the sheep. Now let's meditate on that third phrase. The God of peace. Going back to Hebrews 13.20. Now the God of peace who brought up the from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord. Oh my, the God of peace. In the Old Testament, God went by a title very, very frequently. He was called the Lord of hosts. Anybody know what that means? What's a Lord of hosts? The Lord of the armies. <laughs> the God of Scripture, Jehovah, is Lord of the armies. And usually that means the Lord of these angels that he can um, send to do his bidding at any time and who can destroy any of his enemies. I'm so glad that God is not the Lord of armies arrayed against me on the field of battle. Instead, he's the God of peace. Now, how did he get to be that towards his sheep? Well, it was through the blood of the eternal covenant that he became their God, not of warfare, not of vengeance, and not of wrath. He's the God of peace 
towards those who have been reconciled to him through the blood of Jesus Christ his son see peace is speaking about reconciliation when there's no peace between two people you've got hostility don't you and you need somebody some kind of a a counselor or a mediator to come in and bring those two people back together and reconcile them back together Jesus Christ is our mediator there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus Jesus is the go-between he has one hand upon God the Father because he is God and he has one hand upon us because he is a man and he brings God and sinful man back together to be reconciled and be at peace with one another Romans 5 1 says therefore having been justified by faith we have what peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ now he doesn't say we have peace the peace of God because that's different we have peace with God so what does that tell you was happening before we had faith in Jesus Christ what do we have with God war hostility he was our enemy and we were his enemy we were on opposite sides of a warring uh, combat zone we were over here he was over there and we're lobbing missiles at each other there was no peace between the sinner and God until he puts his faith in Jesus Christ and now there's peace there's reconciliation I want to read to you a text from Colossians chapter 1 verses 20 through 22 and I'm gonna pick up right in the middle of the verse it says and through him to reconcile all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind engaged in evil deeds Do you see the warfare yet he has now reconciled you through what it's in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach see this is good news this is a foundation for sanctification because it means that I don't have to strive to do God's will in order for peace to be made between me and God it's already made through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ peace exists for all who will receive it for all who will believe there's peace established through the cross and that's good do you see that why that's good news it's not like I'm struggling and striving and trying and working and hoping someday God might be peace, peaceable towards me. He's peaceable towards me through the cross. It's already established. It's done. So let's review for a minute. What's the foundation for our, a life of sanctification? Well, it's the blood of the eternal covenant. It's Jesus' blood shed so that our payment was settled Jesus assumed it he paid it in full that's that's established now I have nothing to pay to God it's been paid already I am accepted freely in the beloved through what Christ has done more than that he's the great shepherd of the sheep he was brought up from the dead 
as the great shepherd, meaning that his resurrection life, because he's a public person, is now given to all of his sheep because the sheep are in the shepherd. So the life that's in the shepherd, the risen life of the shepherd is now in the sheep. That gives power for sanctification. And then thirdly, I have been reconciled to this God. He's not God of armies. He's God of peace. We are friends, no longer enemies, close, intimate, tight, relationship of love. And all that has to be in place before you can take the first step of sanctification. You've got to know that things are right between your soul and God. Then you can begin making progress in a life of holiness. Now let's turn to the second part. The process of our sanctification. And this is going to be quicker for us. I'm not going to make too much comment here, but there are three things that God does to sanctify us. Number one, God sanctifies us by equipping us. Look back at Hebrews 13, verse 21. May this God of peace equip you in every good thing to do His will. That word equip in other passages of Scripture means to mend a net that has been broken or to restore a bone that has been broken or is out of joint. Now, why would he use a word like that? It kind of seems like we're broken and we need, we need some fixing up. Well, it's because we are. <laughs> Through the fall, every person in this world has been put out of place or there's holes in us. We're, we're disjointed. We're not able to do the will of God because we're depraved and corrupt through and through. But what does God do? He comes and equips us. He mends that net. He puts those bones back into place. He starts doing that by making us brand new creatures in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit by making us regenerate, born again. And he continues. He, that initial work, he restores our heart to a heart of, in love with Him. And then He continues that by pouring grace in. So He equips us. Notice here, He equips us in every good thing to do His will. How important do you think it is that somebody does the will of God? Is that, is that optional? On a scale of 1 to 10, is that a 4? <laughs> Folks, it's a 10. <laughs> it's a 10. <laughs> Matthew 7.21, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You will not go to heaven, my friend, unless you do the will of God. Those are Jesus' words. I mean, that's pretty plain, isn't it? You can say all you want to. Jesus is my Lord. doesn't matter one bit. Anybody can say anything. Words are cheap. Words are real cheap. I talk to people all the time, and they give these flowery words about how religious and righteous and spiritual they are. But if you follow them around with a video camera, they wouldn't want you playing that before a group of people because they know they're not doing the will of God. Of course, I'm not saying that any of us ever does it perfectly, but we do it. It's the tenor. It's the direction of the sheep's life to follow the shepherd and to do the shepherd's will. 
It's an evidence of your conversion. And if you don't see a life of sanctification taking place, what's likely is you've never been converted. If the Spirit of God, now check this out, if God Himself and the person of the Holy Spirit lives in you, do you think you're going to go on living the same kind of life you always lived before? That isn't even possible. We're talking about omnipotence, right? All power come to live in you. You stay the same? Something's wrong there. You won't stay the same. So God sanctifies us by equipping us. Secondly, by working in us. And this is how He equips us. May God equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Now this verse sounds an awful lot like another verse. You might even be able to name it if you thought about it a minute. It's Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Let's read that. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. I'm going to cut into the middle of verse 12. Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you. Aren't those precious words? It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And doesn't that sound a lot like Hebrews 13.21? To do that which is well-pleasing in His sight for His good pleasure. God is working in us. Hebrews 13.21 For it is God who is at work in you. Philippians 2.13 This makes me wonder if the author of Hebrews wasn't the Apostle Paul, because there's a lot of language and concepts that sound very similar, but we don't know who that was. But we do know this precious truth. Not only does God equip us, but He, he does that through working in us. In other words, God doesn't save you and forgive you and say, okay, do your best. I'm leaving. I'm gone. Try your hardest. We'll see how things go when you die. <laughs> it's not that way. We, he doesn't expect us to live the Christian life all on our own. He promises to continue this work by His Spirit in us day after day after day to make us holy so that we do His will and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. I, I, I'm so grateful that God has not left me to myself so, here's the principle. God is more committed to your sanctification than you are. And when you stop working on your sanctification, God doesn't. And when you do work on your sanctification, it's only because He already is working in you. Do you see that? He is a shepherd that will not let you stray away. You try straying away from Him, guess what's going to happen? He's going to come break your leg. Bind it up, and He's going to carry you until that leg gets healed, and you're never going to stray after that. So if you're a sheep, you're not going to get away with much, because He's going to be after you. He's going to chastise you if you sin and go off into sin. Some of us could probably say, Amen. We've, he's done that in my life before. I can, I can testify. So He equips us. He works in us. Thirdly, He unites us to Christ. And we get that little tidbit from Hebrews 13.21. Look back at it with me. May God equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ. 
God does this work of sanctification in us through Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Well, that phrase, through Jesus, is talking about union. It's talking about us being connected to Christ. He does it through this vital union between the shepherd and the sheep, or the vine and the branches, or the head and the body. We are one, the, the husband and the wife. There's this union together of those two. Now, think with me about this. In Hebrews 10.7, it says that when the Son of God comes into the world, He comes to do God's will. Jesus came from heaven to do God's will. In John 4.34, He was talking to the woman at the well, and this woman left. The disciples came back, and they said, Master, have you eaten? And He said, My meat is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Aren't you hungry, Master? I'm not hungry at all. My feast. I've just had a seven-course feast. You can't imagine how full and satisfied and full of pleasure I am at this moment because I have been doing the will of my Father. See, within Jesus, there was this zeal and this passion and this... Uh, well, those are the best words I can think of to to describe it, this zeal and passion to do the will of His Father. So then in, Ma in John 17, 4, He says, I have accomplished the work you have given me to do. I have done your will. Now, if we are connected to Jesus, and Jesus is full of fiery zeal and passion to do God's will, what's that going to mean about you? It's going to mean that every sheep is going to have this desire to do God's will. That's why you want to please God. Now, if you can say, well, I don't really care about pleasing God, or what I really like is pleasing myself, maybe you're a goat. A sheep wants to do what is pleasing to God. If there's not that desire in the heart, you need to be asking yourself, am I a sheep or not? A sheep wants to. Because they're connected to Christ who wants to. And that desire within Christ funnels through. The, the same life that's in Jesus is in the sheep. The same life in the, the vine is funneled through the branches, right? The same life in the head goes to every member of the body. And so that zeal and passion to do the will of God is in you if you're a sheep. Maybe that's why you've assembled here today, rather than going off to some kind of sporting event or going out to the lake or whatever, because you have a desire to please God. As one sister said earlier, she's hungry. <laughs> you have a hunger to please God. So He equips us, He works in us, and He unites us to Christ. Now, how ought we to respond to all of this? Well, look at the very last phrase of verse 21. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a fitting way for us to respond to everything that Christ has done. What has He done? He, he shed His blood to pay for your sin. He's risen from the dead to give you His life. He's made God a God of armies into a God of peace for you. He's reconciled you. He has equipped you. He's working in you. He's united you to Himself. And so just like in Romans chapter 8, what then shall we say to these things? <laughs> we say glory to the Lamb. 
Worship is the only fitting response to a benediction like Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. Worship, praise, glory. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Can you say that? And do you really wish that from your heart? That throughout all the ages of eternity, you want to bring glory to the Lamb of God who's wrought this for you? I sure do. And I would say, secondly, a fitting response would, He wants you to be sanctified. He's done everything you need for you to be sanctified. Work along with God in the work of sanctification. Don't be stubborn and dig in your heels. Cooperate with the work of the Spirit. In other words, just because we have all these great promises here, it doesn't mean that you can be passive about your sanctification. God wants you active. Pursue holiness, without which no man will see the Lord. Pursue it. That word means to chase it down. Chase after holiness, without which you won't see the Lord. No, there's, a, there's this act, active part in us chasing down holiness. Or work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. He's directing that to you, not God. Now, God is at work in you, but there's this other side of it. You need to be working it out. You need to be chasing it down. And so I want to encourage you to use every means of grace available to you to pursue Christ-likeness. So, what are the means of grace? Prayer. The Word of God. Meditation on the Word. Memorizing the Word. Studying the Word. Fasting. Fellowship with your brothers and sisters. Being part of a vital church where you're involved. You're there, there's this union between you and the other brothers and sisters. There's this commitment in the heart so that you are there and you're part of that, that fellowship. Worship of God. Use every means that God has given you to pursue Christ's likeness. Because He's worthy. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. He died as the lamb, and now He's become the great shepherd. And one day he's going to become the chief shepherd when he appears. And I think all of us should just be very, very content to know that you're a sheep. That, that's really the only question. Am I a sheep? Because a sheep is the object of his everlasting love. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to glorify your holy name. We rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory that you are risen from the dead and you're here with us right in this room. You dwell within each of our lives. You're constantly equipping and working in us what is pleasing in your sight. Lord, you have laid down your life a ransom for many. Lord, you've reconciled us to God our Father so he is the God of peace. And we glorify your great and mighty and holy name as your people. Lord, as we continue today by remembering that crosswork in the Lord's Supper and fellowshipping together around a meal, we pray that you might be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.